I'd like to welcome you all to this event, part of the Alumni Weekend. My name is Al Moreno. I'm the tutor in ancient history at Maudlin. I'm sort of guest, but uh, a local speaker at the same time. And I have the pleasure of having next to me uh, Bethany Hughes, who I think really needs no introduction from me. She's known to millions around the world, not just in this country, but everywhere, as a great voice in uh, uh, proclaiming and demonstrating the relevance and uh, uh, interest of ancient history. She has, uh, beside her, besides her book on Helen of Troy, uh, done a number of uh, TV uh, programs, documentaries that are um, uh, played around the world. I had the pleasure of collaborating in one of these on uh, Athens, and uh, happily, a lot of people who had uh, uh, thought me long disappeared uh, suddenly realized where I was, and uh, uh, as a result of, of um, appearing in your show, I sort of reconnected with, with a lot of people I know. So thank you for that. No problem. <laughs> Delighted. Um, besides the ancient world, her interests stretch uh, uh, to the Moors, and uh, I, I gather there's even something on Istanbul uh, yeah. in the world. Yeah, a new biography of Istanbul coming, yeah. So really, this is uh, the, the ancient Mediterranean, the ancient world um, in the broadest possible sense. And uh, today she's going to talk to us about her book on Socrates, uh, The Hemlock Cup. And um, I'd just like to welcome you, first of all. And um, uh, I'm glad you're here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Lovely to be here. I'd actually like to thank all of you for turning up because it's that kind of post-lunch slot where you could have just stayed outside and had a cup of tea and chatted. But I, but I think having spent some time in Socrates' company researching this book, I think for him the good life uh, is in some way incarnate with face-to-face -face exchange and dialogue. So you all are the incarnation of the good life in Socrates' eyes. So wherever he is, I hope he's smiling down on you. <laughs> Well, one thing that strikes me immediately, how you've moved from the, the physically most beautiful uh, person in antiquity, Helen of Troy, to someone reputed to have been the ugliest uh, uh, person in antiquity, Socrates. And uh, could you tell us a bit more about that, uh, your movement from, from Helen to Socrates? Yeah. Well, I think, I don't, I think they both really share um, the qualities of being ridiculously difficult people to write about. So for some reason, I obviously enjoy making my own life difficult. Um, Helen, as we all know, almost certainly didn't exist, and yet I chose to write a book about her. Um, Socrates, we have a, a, a tiny shred of extant evidence and nothing from Socrates himself. So for some reason, I thought it would be a good idea to write a biography of Socrates. I, I think the thing with Socrates, actually, though, is that in a way although he is almost an anti-biographical subject. Because if you think, when you write a biography, what your publishers will tell you is that you have to have somebody who's well-known. I mean, Socrates definitely ticks that box. Uh, somebody about whom very little has been written. Uh, and yet Socrates, I know, from the moment of his death up until the present day, there isn't a single decade in human history where he goes off the radar. So he's been talked about, painted, debated uh, for the last 2,400 years. So there's a big cross there by that box. And then also, ideally, what you want when you write a new biography is a sort of cache of personal <coughs> letters or, you know, something which reveals something about the man. And as I said, as far as we know, apart from a little kind of apocryphal tale that he, he did a translation of, um, or a, a new version of Aesop's fables um, in his prison, as far as we know, he wrote not a single word down. Um, and, the, and the kind of difficulty of the task I'd given myself was really brought home to me one morning, actually, in Edinburgh, when I was at one of these literary festivals, a sort of li little like this. And they're very, they're, I'm sure you've all been to these literary festivals. They're great, and it's the one chance when authors suddenly all come together in a kind of herd, and, and we all meet one another over the, over the breakfast bar of the hotel that we've been put in. 
And I found myself sitting next to Mark Haddon, um, who you'll know is the author of The Curious Incident of the Dog at Nighttime, who was actually a classicist, I think an Oxford hmm. classicist, so all the best people are. Um, <laughs> and uh, he said, in, again, authors are terrible at small talk, so we sort of said in a rather stilted way, oh, so what are you writing now? What, what about you? What are, what are you writing? And I said I was working on this book on Socrates, and Mark said, uh, oh, what a brilliant donut subject, really rich and satisfying, but with a great big hole in the middle where the central <laughs> character should be. Um, so I found, as I was writing this book in my study, I had this sort of spectral donut hovering um, over my shoulder. Um, so I th in a way, it was a lun lunatic project to, to try to do. Um, but it seemed to me to be um, important to do and feasible for, for, for a couple of reasons. Um, one is, as I'm sure you know, we know really about Socrates through Plato, uh, uh, Xenophon to, to some extent, Aristophanes um, as well. And Plato is always described as a fool's friend because what do when we read those brilliant, cl clever, playful, beguiling dialogues, how much of that is Plato and how much Socrates? Um, and, and kind of the orthodoxy has been that really it's, it's, it's Plato and we can hardly hear Socrates' um, voice. We can hardly get to know the man. Um, but what's very interesting to, to me, and Alfonso, this is your kind of area as well, um, is that when you look at the archaeology of Athens, particularly the new archaeology there is at the moment, minute details in Plato's dialogues are turning up out of the earth. So, so we know for a fact that it's not all made up. It might be that some of these are Plato's opinions, but almost the kind of stage set that Plato is preparing for Socrates is... is terribly accurate. Um, are, there, are there any neuroscientists in the, in the room? Yeah, very good. Well, you, you can correct me um, on this if, if, if it's wrong, but I've been told that there's an interesting thing, that when we um, remember a very powerful memory that we have, these episodic memories. So if we, and, we, and in those, we often think very visually. So if I were to say to any of you, what were you doing last weekend? I'm not going to, but, you know, just, uh, just we pose that as a hypothetical question. What would come into your head would not be a series of words. You wouldn't have a kind of little mini-essay on what you were doing. What would come into your head would be a series of images. And actually, those are very, very uh, true and accurate. Um, and what we think is happening with Plato, who's writing after the event, is that he's remembering very, very precisely images and moments in the life of Socrates that he knew because, as I said, what's interesting is down to the kind of last arrangement of, of rock and size of the entrance to the gymnasia and kind of uh, bushes that were growing by the riverside, these are all now being dug up out of the earth by archaeologists. So I think we can use Plato as some kind of a source for Socrates' life, which up until now we've all been very leery about doing. So anyway, it's a rather long answer to your question. Uh, so a, ma a mad task, perhaps, but, uh, but uh, I, I think we can, we can do that because we can use Plato. What is very striking also is how this is not a, a, a book about the philosophy of Socrates. Mm. It's a history. Mm. Uh, and, um, I mean, it must have been difficult for you not to write another um, uh, book on Socrates' philosophy. Mm. Actually, no, it was very easy because I'm not a philosopher. So I did, I, I did think... <laughs> Uh, I, ha I had a moment when I thought, is this what I, and I thought, what it ha that would be remarkably hubristic for me to, to, to attempt that. Um, wh what I do think is that uh, what I thought kind of needed filling in, in uh, the gap that needed filling in really was that, as you say, his philosophy is dealt with and his trial and his death is dealt with in minute detail. And yet, if you spend time in the company of, of Socratic ideas, it's very clear this was a man who absolutely embraced the living of life. For, I, think he, I think he would genuinely be astounded at the fact that we focus on his death and that, and that moment at his end, when actually, you know, he died aged 70. He'd been philosophising pretty freely in the city for close on 50 years. He lived a vigorous life. He was a soldier um, for, for many, many years on campaign. He sort of, as, as far as we understand, charged through the streets of Athens, really 
doing the Athenian thing, drinking and de debating and, and kind of being a, a vibrant member of the city. So it seemed, as a historian, you know, what I think you're supposed to do as a historian is look and see where there's a gap and, and what you can try to do to, to plug that. So it seemed that in order to understand his philosophy in a way, I felt we needed to try to understand the man and then we might have an idea of, uh, of, of how we could try to access his mind. Another traditional approach to Socrates has always been to take uh, uh, Plato, say, and Xenophon and look for commonalities and try to triangulate towards uh, historical Socrates. Mm. It's a bit, um, I mean, this is the same exercise performed on, on Jesus by, by biblical uh, scholars. Um, but I think you have, um, in a way, short-circuited that traditional way of, of looking at um, Socrates you have instead chosen to look at Athens, mm. uh, as at the city of Athens. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about that? Mm. Well, I think Athens is centrally important to, to Socrates. Um, Plato describes Socrates as saying that Athens is, where his, is the seat of his soul. You know, what matters to him is the city around him and the men, and I actually think, to some extent, the women around him. He, he understands himself through his relationship with, with others. Um, and as far as I'm philosophical in the book, that seems to me the key, in a way, Socratic philosophy, that not just as, that man is the measure of all things, but man's relationship with man is the measure of all things. Um, and and at the great thing about Athens, as, as at the moment, is that there are huge amounts of new archaeology that we can use to try to really get a clear picture of the city, the brilliant, brilliant city that he lived in. Because of the, um, the, the new metro that's been dug there, and also because of the Olympics, and therefore the building of things like the, the fantastic new Acropolis Museum. Have, have any of you been to that museum yet? I mean, I don't know if you agree. It's, I, I think it's great. I think it looks hideous in the Athenian landscape. It looks like a kind of car showroom or, you know, barcode, this horrible black glass thing, you know, perched on the Athenian landscape. But if you do go, the terribly clever thing they've done is, because it's right at the base of the Acropolis rock, of course, ancient Roman, Byzantine, late medieval Athens is, is, is right underneath the foundations. So when you walk into the museum, there's this rather beautiful moment where you're walking on a glass ceiling which is uh, a glass floor, sorry, which is actually the glass ceiling of the archaeology 20 feet or so beneath you. So you walk over and you can see ancient Athens. Um, there's only a 5th century drain is the only bit that there actually is from Socrates' Athens. But, uh, but you, can, you, know, you get a real sense of it. So there's a lot of new archaeology um, that's coming out. So we can try to sort of jigsaw puzzle uh, together this story. And I think also that Athens, it seems so important to for us to understand Athens in a much more subtle way. I think we all probably, I'm guilty of this, possibly, possibly you are, maybe not, but I think when we imagine 5th century Athens, this golden age, the kind of Greek miracle, we have a very beautiful, almost like a serial image in our head of what ancient Athens was. And of course, this was a, a teeming, noisy, difficult, brutal, often, city. Um, a place where, for instance, if you kind of walked up to some of those sanctuaries on the Acropolis rock, there was a, a, a metal foundry there for creating statues. So just imagine, rather than us as tourists going up, and it's all rather kind of bucolic with bushes, there'd have been the horrible stench and kind of clanging noise of the, the, the beautiful statues that we all, all, all adore from 5th century Athens being knocked out. One of my favourite um, artefacts in the New Acropolis Museum is this blackened terracotta frying pan, because they're very keen on fried <coughs> fish, which, of course, came up from the sea. So, again, you have to imagine walking through Athens with the smell of kind of fried fish in your, in your nostrils. And I think because Socrates... It's not specious, this. Because Socrates, when he describes his, his philosophy, the characters he uses to portray it are ordinary men and women of Athens. They are the bakers, the porters... Uh, the glove makers, the cheese, the cheese makers, the generals. So he uh, inhabits his philosophical world with the real people of Athens. So in order to understand him, it seems that we have to re-inhabit his world with the historical characters. I would say uh, even more, in a, in a post-Cold War world uh, that we live in, democracy is, is no longer uh, sort of unquestioningly accepted as uh. you know, the ultimate you know, perfect form of government. Uh, and that aspect of Athens actually has, um, 
has been looked at uh, more and more closely in the last 50 years, 30 years, 20 years. Yeah. And with, um, I think with increasing uh, uh, skepticism, uh, the democracy, I mean, the, the government that after all killed Socrates, mm -hmm. what was uh, Socrates' relationship to this, um, to this form of government that uh, most of us, uh, I think instinctively, uh, think of as being uh, good? Good thing. Yeah. It's a fa really fascinating question, that. Because I, one, of the, one of the reasons that Socrates, I think, is so important to all of us, when I wrote this book, inevitably I had all these journalists' questions of, okay, Socrates, how relevant is he to your world? And you sort of think, how long have you got? You know, I could spend the next 48 hours telling you why Socrates is relevant. If, for the one thing, if not anything else, that this, his brilliant aphorism, the unexamined, unexamined life is not worth living for a man, I think in those words, Socrates gives us the modern world in a way. But in many other ways, fascinatingly, I think that Socrates almost sees us coming. He's more relevant to the 21st century than in some ways he has been to, to centuries that have gone before. For two reasons, exactly as you said, his ambiguous relationship with democracy, which I'll deal with in one second, also, very interestingly, his anxiety about materialism. I mean, Athens was a brassy, out-there, show-off, uh, <coughs> PR-frenzied uh, city in the, in the 5th century, very good at, at kind of publicising itself, uh, a place that delighted in, in the physical um, and in the possibilities of the physical. And I think Socrates is counter to that. It's one of the reasons I think he annoys the Athenians, famously with his bare feet and his one... Uh, ragged cloak and unwashed, you know. I think it's, a, again, it's a later source, so I'm not, I'm not sure this actually happened, but we're told he strode through the agora saying, how many things I don't need, which is exactly how I feel when I walk through, you know, Peter Jones or John Lewis, you know, who needs another blue vase, you know, or a sort of pink tablecloth or whatever. Um, and, and, and he really questions at that moment when kind of... Uh, both freedom of speech and materialism are, are, are kind of central to what it is to be a democratic Athenian. He seems to, to say, well, where is that leading us? Again, it's a later source, but we're told he said, you know, it's all very well having beautiful warships and high city walls and wonderful statues, but what's the point of any of this if those within the city walls aren't happy? Um, so I think he sort of sits himself as opposed to what it is to be Athenian in kind of emotional and physical cultural terms, but also absolutely, as you say, with a democracy. He questions whether this thing, this word, this, this word idea, democratia, whether it is as faultless um, as other Athenians would, would like to pretend it is. Um, because democracy, you know, you've got to bear in mind that Socrates was growing up, when democracy was growing up, you know, uh, when he was born, it had only been kind of invented for, for 20 years or so in, in any, any real sense. So it's a brand new, radical troubling idea this that you've come from a world where kings uh, tribal leaders warriors have been in charge the old despot the old tyrant this notion that you can rule and be ruled in turn you know that you have the right to be heard of in the democratic assembly and to decide on the laws that are passed you know what a, what a crazy idea really so it's a very new idea but the athenians as we know take it up, you know, they're sort of seduced by this word democracy. Um, interestingly, that the aristocrats of the day start to call their young, their eldest sons, Democrates, sometimes. It becomes this kind of fashionable word. And I was actually talking to some students at Cornell University, and I said, oh, you know, they called their kids Democrates. Of course, that wouldn't happen now, because what would we call them? I don't know, in this country, kind of lib con or something. I don't know, I don't know you know, what, a, what would... But this guy put up his hand and said... No, this is absolutely um, happening with the Arab Spring and the original uh, revolts in, in Egypt, in Tahrir Square. Uh, one of the main protesters, uh, who the, the, the day that um, you know, it looked like they were successful, he had a call on his phone from his wife to say, I've just had a baby girl, just to let you know you're a father. What should we call her? And this young protester said, she shall be called Facebook. Because... <laughs> <laughs> For him, Facebook was this new political tool that had changed his world. So actually, you know, so there's somewhere in Egypt now, there's a little three-year-old or whatever it is called Facebook. So it absolutely um, happened. Um, but, but I think Socrates was terribly perceptive, wasn't he, in, in 
seeing the potential flaw and having, having not necessarily in democracy itself, but and having this potent word that could be used as a panacea, that, you know, that the idea that democracy could be waved around like a kind of magic wand. Um, I mean, you know, again, I'm sure many of you in the audience have spent time in Egypt, and I spent a lot of time there, and they're just the the horror of what's going on there now uh, uh, and the issues of, of a democracy appearing in a country that's, to be honest, not, not ready for it. Um, so Socrates, as I said, I think he sees us coming, and, but he makes himself unpopular by raising up his hand in 5th century Athens where people, people want answers and he, he just keeps on giving them questions and he questions whether democracy is the best form of government. This is really the, the beginning of all troubles for him, isn't it? Yes. Um, uh, uh, there are all sorts of people in Athens who might share that, uh, that view, but would go further than Socrates in actually wishing uh, to overthrow the government and perhaps go back to uh, what came before, essentially a, an aristocracy. Mm. Um, do you see Socrates as uh, going with them all the way, or... I mean, in other words, is Socrates an anti-democrat, or is he more subtle than that? Mm. Well, I, I have to say, I think he's. I think there's no question he's more subtle than that, because he. It seems to me, two things really. One, the word genius is overused. We use it the whole time. I think Euripides and Socrates were both geniuses. I think that actually, if you look at um, uh, the freshness of what they seem to be saying about the world, the bravery, uh, the sympathy, there, there is something quite extraordinary there. And I don't think someone as bright as Socrates would, would be as blunt as to uh, re reject a very interesting intellectual idea, which is what democracy is. And of course it's true, he did have a number of aristocratic friends. He ate at their table, and the, uh, exactly as you're saying, um, at the time of his trial, this is one of the, you know, the underlying issues. That's, that, that's, it's kind of both the spoken and the unspoken issue with Socrates, that, that he had friends who were not just aristocrats, but, but oligarchs. But Socrates had many opportunities to publicly ally himself with those men. He doesn't, he doesn't do it in any kind of explicit way. Um, he also has the chance to be even more critical of the democratic process, and he doesn't do that. So I think he's just being, as I said, terribly brave. I think that he's having the uh, moral and intellectual backbone to stand up at a time when he says, this is very important what you're doing, this democratic thing, but it is just an experiment, we should remember, and you need to test an experiment before you put it into practice. Mm -hmm. The history of Athens, uh, in the, not just the uh, 30 years immediately before Socrates' death, but um, going back beyond the, the start of the Peloponnesian War, is increasingly brutal. Mm. Uh, uh, you have the Persian Wars, uh, the, uh, the Delian League, the, the alliance formed by the Greeks to uh, protect themselves against uh, uh, another Persian invasion, uh, gradually becomes an Athenian empire. Mm. And this war sees Athens really clamp down on um, some of these uh, other Greek cities. I mean, Milos is, is mm. um, uh, I think, a very clear instance, even in, you, you, one should call it genocide. Yes. Uh, all Melians um, are removed from the island, males are killed, uh, women and children are enslaved. Uh, so a whole population is destroyed. Uh, Socrates was in Athens mm. uh, at this time, and um, uh, who knows what he felt about Milos in, in, in particular, mm. but uh, he must have had views about Athenian imperialism mm. uh, and about what this was doing to Athens regardless of you know, what uh, form of government they, they had, yes. democracy or, or oligarchy. Yeah. Um, this was a population that had gradually become used to brutalizing other Greeks. Mm. Um, do you think that, uh, I mean, is, is that um, in the run-up to Socrates' trial and, and death, are, are we to picture Athens as a, uh, a city where death and uh, um, brutality have become commonplace? Well, sadly, I think we are. And again, we don't want to because there is a sort of, 
you know, genetic pull, I think, with the sp us, us as a species, that we want to believe in golden ages because if they happen once, they can happen again. And we don't want to think that actually 5th century Athens, particularly, as you say, you know, from the mid towards the end of the, of the Peloponnesian War, but actually before, was a desperately brutal, uh, unforgiving place. The Melian uh, genocide that you're talking about, again, I'm sure you'll all know, but th th this, there's this famous debate where basically the Athenians, it's kind of gunboat diplomacy. They go uh, take their, their boats and say, you want to be Democrats, don't you? And the Melians go, well, actually, not, no, we're, we're fine, thank you. And, and the, the Athenians say, I don't think you heard us uh, quite, quite, quite clearly. You want to be Democrats, don't you? Um, and the Melian said, no, we've got a very, you know, kind of ancient constitution. This isn't something that we want to do. And the Athenians say, well, I'm afraid might is right. You just, yeah, you just have to listen to us. And then, as you say, there's enslavement and, and death follows. Um, and I wonder, you know, Athens has become very damaged towards the end of the Peloponnesian War. The, the plague um, has torn through Athenian streets. Um, this was this city that was sort of had been punching above its weight so successfully, and suddenly everything seems to start to go wrong. Um, the plague, we now know, again, you know, Thucydides wrote about this plague, and we'd sort of wondered, really, whether the, that description had been overwritten, but there's been fascinating new work done on a child's skull from a plague pit in, in <laughs> Athens, the little girl that the scientists are calling Myrtis, who's a little 11-year-old girl. And um, they've dug down into the, uh, dent her dental cavity, into the, the tooth pulp, to find out what she died of, because we think at least 80,000 Athenians died over a space of a couple of years, uh, Pericles amongst them. Um, and it looks like, I'm just going to read it out, actually, because I bet there are some doctors in the house who would dare to tell me if there Well, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll read this out, and you can tell me what it is. This is your little viva. This is, um, so what it, what it was discovered that she died of was Salmonella, Enterica, Serawa, Tiffy, Typhi, Typhus, or Typhoid, which do you, does anybody know? Typhus, I think it's Typhus, there's still debate about it, but this was this dreadful plague that had gone through the city, the Athenians have lived through that, um, they've watched as their arch enemies, the Spartans, win more and more territories, you know, somehow the gods seem to be against the Athenians, um, and Socrates is, in a way, he's surrounded by a lot of that was very bad. As a soldier, he's had to go and fight out at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War uh, and besiege a city which has had to turn to cannibalism because of the Athenians outside. And he was there, you know, so he, he, he would have heard this, smelt it, seen it, certainly heard stories about it. And I wonder whether one of the reasons that Socrates, for instance, doesn't... Uh, uh, speak out against the Melian debate is that on a much more fundamental, almost kind of cellular level, he's trying to understand what it is to be a good and a bad human. So rather than pick away at these individual injustices, which is what he doesn't, he doesn't really do that anywhere else. He's just looking philosophically at what, how can you be the best human it's possible to be. I think that one of the reasons he's doing that is because he's actually living in a, in a dysfunctional brutal world and a brutal society. And Alfonso has been very modest here because he's done a lot of original research on the clerics and you know, how that ties into... Do you, do you want to say a little bit about that? Because it's very interesting. Um, the, the, the Athenian Empire um, uh, was a democratic empire which uh, distributed land uh, to its citizens um, there's a, there's a, a very interesting catchword for, the, at the beginning of democracy, the, the catchword isonomia uh, was used by, by Cleisthenes, the, the, the revolutionary aristocrat who um, uh, created this form of government in Athens. Isonomia is traditionally interpreted, probably rightly, as equality under the law. That is a, um, a fundamental aspect of, of democratic life the laws apply equally to everyone. But for a long time, there was debate about another meaning of isonomia. Uh, this, this is etymologically connected to uh, the, the, the Greek verb for division. Um, so not nomos as law, but nemein as to distribute. So isonomia is an equal distribution. Um, in all likelihood, isonomia is a, one of these uh, very useful political catchwords because it is ambiguous. It, if 
effectively it can mean those two things simultaneously. So there's no use you know, debating academically which one of the two we should, we should choose. Uh, in the streets of Athens, people could uh, uh, pick either or or both. Distribution of what? Equality of distribution of what? Uh, we know that the Athenians distribute grain, so distribution of bread, distribution of food, distribution of essentials, but also distribution of land. Where did this land come from? That, uh, that question uh, is answered uh, 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 wonderfully by Plutarch, who gives a list of uh, places that the Athenians conquered and uh, um, set up colonies on. Uh, so in short, the Athenians took land from other Greeks around the Aegean and distributed it to themselves uh, as, and considered it a dem part of democratic life. Um, there's, there, they even joked about it. Uh, in, in Aristophanes, uh, in the clouds, uh, the characters enter this, uh, this mad uh, university where all sorts of experiments are taking place under Socrates' teachings, or this fictional Socrates. And uh, this uh, student asks, what is going on here? And he points to a, a kind of blackboard where um, uh, all sorts of lines are drawn. And uh, 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 another student answers, well, this is geometry. This is a, 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 a basic, uh, a bit of knowledge taught in this university of Socrates, because geometry is the most democratic of sciences. Now, why would democracy uh, uh, have anything to do with geometry? Uh, it's not an obvious joke, but the Athenians would get it immediately. Well, geometry was the science of dividing land, of um, creating cadastres for the division of land uh, for Athenians. So, uh, with, with, with the democracy came the dispossession of, of thousands of Greeks uh, around the Aegean. Mm. Well, um, tens of thousands, actually. Or, yes, or, yeah. Uh, so not a, not a, not a, a friendly place, uh, uh, not a friendly sort of government. But you, 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 you spoke about might being right in, in the Melian dialogue. Mm. That, of course, is the ultimate relativistic uh, stance. You know, whoever, whoever has the might has the right. Mm. Um, and Plato has uh, quite a lot to say about that kind of relativism. And the answer Plato gives is complete absolutism. Mm. Uh, the truth is right, and the truth is single. And there's only one way of discovering the truth, and that is philosophy. And only certain people equipped to discover the truth, and those are the philosophers. Um, so it's easy to see how an anti-war stance, an anti-might-makes-right stance, might lead, at the end of the war, towards uh, absolutist uh, views. Mm. Um, so let's move to the charge. Is Socrates, you know, after all this you know, horrible experience of imperialism, of death, of war, of plague, um, well, maybe Socrates wants to die in, mm -hmm. in 399 as a 70-year-old. He's seen enough. He's tired of life. Is that a plausible <laughs> way of reconstructing it? Can well, we talk a bit more about the charge and, and, and the outcome of the trial? Yeah, of course. So, so, so Socrates is, is then, so he's lived this life, as we said, uh, 50 years, philosophizing pretty freely in the city, making a lot of friends, also making a lot of enemies. Um, the way he appears uh, in Aristophanes plays as this kind of ridiculous character. I, I think, you know, we can't underestimate that because those who were youngsters at the time who'd, who'd sat and watched Socrates dis, dis, uh, displayed as this kind of parody of himself, they'd, they would be some of those men who would be, I'm sure, sitting around as his judge and juror um, in the trial. Um, so Socrates has done this annoying thing, as I said, of rather than in a sort of city that was, also, was beautiful but was also described as sleek and oily, um, you know, a city which, which had enemies because it was, had this sort of extraordinary sense of itself and it doesn't want questions asked of it. Socrates is there the whole time as he describes himself, this gadfly on the thoroughbred horse, stinging and pricking away. And I think there's just a point, two things. I think there's a point where, to be honest, the city just gets bored of that. There's a kind of ennui. Uh, it's something that we see around us the whole time, both the trial by media, which is in a sense what the, uh, his appearance in Aristophanes in the play is, it seems to me, a trial in front of a crowd. And also 
we just get bored of people being top dog, don't we? You know, we love them. Nick Clegg, classic example. We loved him in those television debates. We've, you know, we allowed him. And then, we, what was it? Within kind of three weeks, we were really bored of, of Nick Clegg and his sad face, you know, sitting on those benches. And that, unfortunately, is, you know, that seems to be a, a human characteristic. And I think Socrates is uh, the victim of that. Um, as you said, he, he was 70 when he came to trial. That's a, that's a pretty good age for somebody from the ancient world, and particularly from Athens, where we think the average age of, of death for a man is it's around about between 45 and 48, isn't it, yeah. I think, at this time in 5th century Athens. So he's really outlived um, many of his peers. Um, but I think if you look at his trial, his charges are uh, denying the city's gods or disrespecting, it's a, it's a, it, it, or dishonouring, it's a, you know, it's, it depends how you translate it. Introducing new gods and corrupting the young, because of course this is we haven't talked about this at all. You know, it is the young of Athens, the young men uh, who are so enchanted by this by this teacher, um, and that's really worrying for Athens because Athens is a military state. It needs its young men <laughs> to do what they're told to kind of believe in in Athens without question, um, and he's on trial. He's there at the end of this desperately difficult period in Athenian history uh, where they've lost really all self-confidence in themselves. At one point, at, at, from 480 onwards until a, a probably about, I'd say, about 450, maybe 440, Athenians thought they could do anything. And now they are questioning, really, whether what kind of power they have. And Socrates is on trial being judged by 500 or 501 uh, Athenian citizens who've lived through terrible, terrible times. Now, does he, famously, according to Plato, he really has the chance to talk his way out of this. You know, if there's one thing we know about Socrates, he has the gift of the gab. He, he can, he'd be like that kind of annoying barrister that you sit next to at a dinner who's great, very, very, very clever, you know, always has the last laugh and the last say, but actually at the end of the evening you think, thank God I don't have to sit next to him again. But, uh, <laughs> maybe there's some of those in the room, I don't know. Um, uh, but this is, this is Socrates, and then he gets to his trial, and of course he could have stood up, I'm sure, and won that crowd round uh, to his point of view. I wonder, I, I wonder, looking very carefully at that apology um, speech, I wonder whether actually there's a moment when Socrates misjudges the mood in the room. Because there are two votes for his, uh, uh, you know, uh, when it's being decided what, what's, what's to be done with him. And the first vote actually isn't a capital punishment. So he isn't condemned to death after the first vote. He then stands up and, and gives his own defence. And they say, so what would you like to propose as your, as your penalty? And Socrates stands up and says, well, the thing is, as you all know, all I've spent my life doing is looking for, nurturing, developing, embracing the good of Athens, the good of the people of Athens. And so I would suggest that the punishment that you give to me uh, is free dinners in perpetuity, uh, paid for by Athenians. And, you know, I, I think he was expecting a laugh at that point. And you just get the sense that this 500, so I think there are about 150 people here, so, you know, three and a half times you. So it's, not, it's big, but it's not that big. It's a kind of, you know, you can, you can see people's, the whites of their eyes. And I think, as we all know, what happens when there is a mob mentality, when there's just a feeling in the room, I think that those men who have lost uh, brothers, sons, wives, fathers to plague and war, I think they say, how dare you laugh at us? We are your judge and jury. How dare you mock what it is to be a democratic Athenian? And then... The, um, they, they are given the chance to vote again, and this time uh, there's a majority that, that votes um, for, his, for his death. So, so, to answer your question, did Socrates do it on purpose? Did he kind of think, okay, well, you know, it's a good time to die? I'm, I'm not sure, actually, that he did. I, I get the sense, if you kind of read between the lines of his words, I, I get the sense he sort of thought he'd managed to, he'd, he'd survived so much and he'd managed to talk his way out of it. But then, of course, he's in prison and doesn't accept the offer of uh, somebody offers him the chance to escape, and he refuses because Plato tells us he said he's, he's been judged by the laws of Athens and he, he needs to die by them. It is a, it is a curious um, 
uh, last vote uh, and, and argument um, leading there. Um, it, it strikes me as very absolutist. You know, he, he, he claims he did the Athenians the ultimate good, so they should do the ultimate good back to him. Mm. Meals forever, uh, yeah. for the rest of his life. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, the prosecution is arguing for an equally absolutist punishment, death. Um, these poor Athenian jurors are faced with one or, or two alternatives. Athenian courts work this way. There, are, there is no judge uh, you know, to sort of moderate these two uh, uh, extreme uh, positions and reach a sort of middle ground. The Athenians have a vote. Uh, each, each of these 500 jurors have a, a, a ballot uh, that uh, they, they put in one or two ball ballot boxes, either voting for the prosecution's proposal or Socrates' proposal. Mm. Um, how many of, of, of Socrates' final uh, votes, you know, against, were merely by people who, you know, disagreed with uh, his absolute position but would have taken a middle ground if mm. he'd proposed one? Mm. So it does make you wonder uh, whether he... Um, uh, either whether he was an absolutist, mm. i.e. a bit like Plato, but that takes us into philosophy, <laughs> uh, or, or whether he actually, or whether he was uh, suicidal, or, 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 you know, wanted to do something spectacular. Yes. Um, so he would be memorialized. Well, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe. Because all this happens in one day, you have to remember, in the Athenian court. And I think, you know, Socrates says, is really, you know, a day enough to judge the life of a, of a man. So it, it is a very emotional uh, exercise this actually there's no time to, for anybody to go and sleep on it and think about the decision they're about to make and um, as Alfonso says obviously this isn't this isn't a death penalty because the Athenians don't want blood on their hands this is state-sponsored suicide is the kind of way it's officially rather beautifully euphemistically put um, uh, and, and it is indeed hemlock hemlock had been a very uh, popular means of, of death um, introduced in the kind of uh, 15 years or so before Socrates' trial. And there's a, there's a brilliant, very sinister line in one of Aristophanes' plays when they talk about that crunching sound of the pestle and water mm. as the hemlock is being ground up. Um, so, you know, it, it was a kind of, it was, the, it was the new kind of electric chair of its day in a way, wasn't it? The, the fact that he was, he was killed with hemlock. Less punishing than some, you, you could be killed in more gruesome ways in Athens. There was a sort of form of uh, crucifixion, which actually again turns up in Plato, where he's walking around the walls of the Athens and come across somebody who's been kind of strapped to this board and left to die. So actually, it's not as bad as it could, could be. It's not as humiliating. And it's a private death. Yes. I mean, in a way, in that sense, it's the opposite of, say, Jesus' death. Or yes. You know, a Roman, you know, a convict's death. Yes. Uh, it is. It is a death perfect for those of his disciples who want to, you know, write up what it is that he did and said in those last hours. Yes. Um, you know, because he, you know, there wasn't uh, an audience except except for them. You know, uh, so it's a in a way a perfect death. Yeah. Uh, for the school of Socrates. Absolutely, and I just I might just get up. This is we weren't going to do you a PowerPoint, but I know somewhere. In here, I just wish you can wish you have a little, a kind of whistle-stop tour of Socratic moments. This is um, actually I wasn't going to do this, but I'll just tell you why that's up there. This is the um, Agora uh, on the first day of the digs in 1931, uh, where the, the centre of Athens had to be cleared off the top. They're still waiting. You go out there. There's a fantastic man called Professor Camp who's in charge of the digs in the Agora at the moment. And if you go to Athens, please go. The Greeks desperately need your money at the moment. Go and walk down uh, through the Ag Agora, down Adrianu Street, and look to the right, which is where the very exciting new digs are. And you'll be, you'll be able to see the Stoa Poikile, the painted Stoa, is being excavated at the moment, which is where Stoics get their name from. So that's coming out of the earth. But, the, um, but Professor Camp, who's running it, there's one extremely stubborn Taverna owner who, uh, I think fair play to him actually, who's owned the family restaurant right on top of the end of the painted stoa and is just refusing to sell. And I think the kind of brown bags of euros are getting fatter and fatter <laughs> and fatter, but he's doing a bit of an ochi thing. So, um, so we've got sort of three quarters of the painted stoa at the moment. Um, this, is, uh, this is just to show you the, the state of archaeology in some parts of Athens. These are the long walls that go down to the port of Piraeus. As you can see, 
modern-day Greeks have thrown everything they can at them. Uh, an industrial canal on the right there, a motorway on the top, a train station, and then just for, for, for kind of, you know, fair measure, some uh, electric mains cables draped lovingly over these world-class monuments. When I went to visit them, I jumped down to that little bit in the middle where the, the grass is, thinking, oh, now I can really get get close kind of to the truth of 5th century Athens. And as I jumped in, my feet splintered syringes from the junkies who, who also inhabit that. So, so it needs a little bit of TLC. So sorry, these, these are just, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll whiz through them because um, they're not relevant. These are one of the, the young men that uh, Socrates would have corrupted. This is Democratia being fetishised, um, being a, a goddess here. She's crowning hot demos the people. You can see again this kind of notion of what democratia has, has become for the Athenians. That's me looking at the word, the first time demos appears as a political unit um, in the archaeological record. It's just it's two slabs that have just been recently joined. But rather depressingly, it's actually talking about the people of Salamis um, and they're being described as a tax unit. So the first time, rather than hot demos being a sort of revolutionary political crowd, they're just a bunch of people who can be taxed, which I think says something to us about democracy. Um, oh, the paint, the colours of the statues in Athens, you know, we'd, we would think about it as those bleached monuments, forget them, it was a, a fairground jaunty. This is our little girl, who Myrtis, who, whose uh, teeth we've investigated and to find out what the plague was. I will get there, I will get there. I'm just trying to find you a picture of Socrates. There we are. Socrates, as since we've got to his, to his death. Um, and I wonder, shall I just read out yeah. a little, a, a brief, very brief description? I only do this because if I don't read out, at the end people always say, why didn't you read anything from, from the book? So this is very, very, very brief, fear not. But possibly interesting to, to look at that image of Socrates, which is... Uh, this is Rousseau, and it's, it's, the, it's the one that's kind of been fed to us as this, this is how Socrates died, beautifully, with his friends around him. Um, and the, uh, there, there's been a lot of discussion about what kind of hemlock was used. And actually, I, up until five years ago, we thought it was water hemlock, which, in which case you would never die like this. It's, if you were poisoned with water hemlock, it's a disgusting death. You puke and, forgive me, shit and start to hemorrhage and uh, uh, judder. It's a very ugly way to die. But we actually think now that poison hemlock was used, which actually does kill you rather as is described by Plato and has been <coughs> idolised in this painting. So Socrates throughout his life has watched the dreadful dying of men. He was there when humans slipped easily into barbarity, when they murdered countrymen, neighbours, family and friends. Dying in old age, surrounded by his best beloved, lying on a bed is approximately his fate it is perhaps not a bad end to a good life. His lack of interest in whether his body is buried or burned is palpable. It is the moment of passing that has always fascinated him. And perhaps that's why he covers his face as he dies to experience this greatest of all journeys alone. It's the effects of poison hemlock that the prison official in Plato's Phaedo seems to demonstrate to Socrates' companions. And passing upwards in this way, the prison official showed that he was growing cold and rigid. And then again he touched him and said that when the poison reached his heart, he would be gone. The chill had now reached the groin area. Poison hemlock does indeed attack the extremities first, often damaging the peripheral nerve, which is a massive single cell up to four feet long, which is a rather disgusting thought, that I, in fact I discovered while researching this book, um, a cell that runs from the <coughs> spine to the toes. There's a terminal seizure as the brain is starved of oxygen. This would normally be a violent spasm. By, by this stage, all muscles are paralysed, so they cannot convulse. So at that time of the day, when everyone else is scurrying home, when the market stalls and the agora are being cleared of their wares, when unsold slaves are taken back to their shackles for the night, when slugged leaves and soiled spice is abandoned, when little boys scour the dust, frantically searching for the thing that they have lost, without which a welcome home means a beating. Socrates is being terminated. As he said when he heard of his conviction at his trial, I go to die and you to live. Who knows which is the better journey? And who indeed, I say. Um, so this is, this is Socrates' death. Um, and we're told that almost immediately once he's died, the Athenians regret their decision. Um, they erect a statue to him, they institute a period of, of mourning, there are retributions. 
Um, which I think, again, actually, if you look at it again, I, that's, I think it's been slightly, I think the time's been contracted. I think it took longer for them to regret their decision. But it does suggest to me that the mood in the courtroom initially wasn't as ugly um, uh, as we think it might, and there was a chance, you know, Socrates thought actually the Athenians could, could possibly have not forgiven him, but given him a lesser, a lesser punishment. Yes, the Athenians do a, 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 a quite a quick about face. In, in, mm. uh, in the, in ten years after the Peloponnesian War, uh, they seem to be trying to, to do the same, uh, rebuilding an empire. Um, uh, and, you know, all these fifth century figures, which had been controversial, Pericles even mm. are 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 the new the new heroes. Mm, Socrates, mm. I suppose, is 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 just like him in mm. many ways. And what's terribly important is actually again we sort of I think tend to think of Socrates as being a hero for Western civilization, but he's terribly um, popular in Middle Eastern civilization as well. And again, it's something that that um, one of the reasons we need to understand him because he's so influential. I was filming down on the uh, Syrian border uh, a couple of years ago and these little kids, snotty little, real dirt poor little kids came up to me because they love a camera, a camera always attracts attention and they said, um, oh you know, can we teach you some Arabic? And of course what they mean is, can we teach you to say, me to say, you know, I have the face like the back of a goat or, you know, my name is Bottom or something. So we sort of did this and it was all hilarious and they laughed and, and, um, and then they said, why are you here? And I said, oh, well, I'm, I'm looking at uh, uh, thinkers and philosophers uh, from the ancient world. And they said, oh, can we tell you the names of three of our philosophers? I said, okay, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to hear them. And they said, Plato, Socrates and Aristotle. <laughs> and it was an extraordinary moment, actually, because, you know, there I was, as I said, with these kids who I definitely weren't at school. I, I, I would challenge three ten-year-olds in the streets of Oxford today uh, to tell me that these were their, their philosophers. But this was something that they had been taught by their families, that these were uh, philosophers that they should be proud of and who were a part of their system. And actually lots of... Um, I've got a, a nice picture here, I think. Lots of uh, young... There we go. This is, this is Socrates... It's a, this is a later copy of an 11th century original. Um, uh, the Arabic version of Plato, Aflatones, of the name Plato, is a terribly, terribly popular name in the Middle East. So uh, we, none of us speak enough Arabic to know that, but there are lots of little Platos running around the, uh, running around the world. Um, so yes, yeah, so Socrates, he's, he's rehabilitated by the Athenians and then passes into the kind of understanding of both, of both East, and, East and West. Um, but I think it's not. I think it's not because of this quasi-heroic death, this kind of anti-heroic death. I have to say, I think it's because there is something of extraordinary positivity in. In and now we can talk about philosophy very briefly because we're going to open it to the to the floor uh, of of his ideas. If you look at if you look at the works of Plato describing Socrates, one of the words that Socrates uses more frequently than any other is love. The the, the need for love and what he means and eros is the word used and he doesn't mean a kind of sexual love or a kind of wishy-washy love he's talking about a kind of delight in life uh, a need not just to live life but to love the living of it um, uh, eros in the symposium is described as a god who who gives us delight and desire who, who kind of makes us want to get up in the morning and do something with our lives in a way it's it's eros as ambition and I think this is one of the things, this is why, for me, Socrates is so attractive, because it seems to me he's sort of saying to all of us, stop sitting on your bottoms complaining, you know, get on and try to, try to do something about it. And I wonder if we can just have the words of Socrates just at the end before, before we, we open it um, to, to questions from the floor. Uh, because this is, this is, I think, why we need to remember Socrates. This is from the Apology. And while I have life and strength, I shall never cease from the practice and teaching of philosophy, exhorting anyone whom I meet after my manner and convincing him, saying, Oh, my friend, why do you, who are a citizen of the great and mighty and wise city of Athens, why do you care so much about laying up the greatest amount of money and honour and reputation, and yet so little about wisdom and truth and the improvement of the soul? Go on, live life better. And I say amen to that. 